right, so this summer we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount and uh, by Jesus, and one of the common things that's been happening is Jesus has been exposing the view that the religious leaders of his day had of the Old Testament law, the way they understood what God wanted, how God wanted them to live. And they reduced it to mainly this outward actions that worked when they wanted them to work in their situations. And what Jesus has been doing, he's been challenging that and at the same time giving a vision for righteousness that goes deeper than just our outward acts, but more towards the heart. And it's been challenging for us just as much as it was for the original hearers. And what's interesting at this point in the Sermon on the Mount that we're getting to is a point where he's going to talk about enemies. And, uh, and as I was thinking and preparing, honestly, these thoughts came to my mind. This is going to be a hard passage for us. Not because it's teaching hard, because I think as most of us come in this morning, and if I was to say, who are your enemies? You probably couldn't list any out. Because the way our society's functioning right now, at least on how we think about life, that most of us think, oh, we've got a lot of great relationships. We're, maybe some people would frustrate us, but we don't have real enemies. And conveniently, we can dodge this passage and not wrestle with really what Christ wants us to wrestle with in the Sermon on the Mount. So what I want us to do is I want to give you a couple scenarios that maybe will help us uh, get a new framework around how we see this concept of enemy and maybe be able to identify these things to see our need for what Jesus has to say this morning. So I'm going to give you a few scenarios. First one, be a picture on the screen here. Uh, some of you uh, have seen this show before, fans of it. But let's say, let's just think about this first scenario as an, as an issue with a coworker in the workplace. And let's say that you work with someone who is known to blame others when a project goes bad, right? Which Michael Scott was really able to do. And would take credit for all of the good things, even when you had nothing to do with it, which is what Michael Scott did all the time. And in the show, there was a part comedy routine. But if you were to literally put yourself in that workplace and work under someone in that fa fashion, it can be pretty challenging. But you're a good Christian, and so you put a smile on your face and just try to avoid interactions and do your job, right? Well, let's say one day uh, things turn on you and not just generally in the office place, and you get thrown under the bus over a project that you had nothing to do with, but your boss throws you under the bus under it. And not only that, something that does go well, they take credit for it. And so this whole nice, good Christian persona that you put a smile on your face turns deep down inside this just, I want to get back at them. What does it, what does it take? And you begin to plot and to look forward ways to do that. And then on top of that, this same person who threw you under the bus and then took credit for what you did comes to you and asks for help on the next project. Right? That's the first scenario. Let's take another scenario. Let's say this is maybe an issue with acquaintance, maybe a person you know from church. Let's say you, they say you're a friend, but the relationship feels a bit more one-sided. And they're just becoming a long list of things that when you are around this person that begin to grate you and frustrate you, they always seem to be taking life and never seem to give it. Your interactions always end with them complaining or venting about someone or something not coming through for them. And then You've noticed that even as time gone on and you notice those things more, you also start to notice these personality quirks that this person has that begin to frustrate you and grate at you, and you can't think about anything else when you're around them. But you're a good Christian, so you smile and you're nice in your interactions. But underneath the surface, you do little things that are all about avoidance. You try to avoid eye contact so that you don't have to go talk to them. Or if you go talk to them, you try to have something planned that you've got to go do next so that you can move on. To the next thing. Let me give you another scenario. And this is more of an issue with those who hold different beliefs or particularly political beliefs. Let's say that uh, as time goes on and 
you see posts regularly on social media, you listen to news, maybe a few talk shows, you hear particular views about life and politics that uh, leave you a little puzzled at first. And you just try to want to understand how a person's coming from a different angle than you. Uh, and at first you have a hard time understanding, but as time goes on, that lack of understanding moves into frustration. And that frustration moves into disbelief and anger. But you're a good Christian, so you back up your views with things in the Bible. But in the end, what you find happening in your heart is you're just stewing in your mind and at times venting to others, how can they think like that? Don't they care about people, the Bible, this country? Those are little heavy scenarios to start off with, right? But this is a heavy passage. And the reason why I share those with you is because if you're like me, you're going to at least can identify with one of those situations that begin to expose how we treat those and how we think about those, maybe at a heart level, who disagree with us, who wrong us, who do something to us that we would consider maybe not an enemy in our real time, but an enemy in biblical terms here. And so what I want us to see here is what is applicable that Jesus is teaching towards an enemy. How much even more is it applicable to those who might just frustrate us, those who might we might clash with? those who might wrong us or exploit us in some way. And I really begin that, that if we can wrestle with what Jesus is saying here, not only is there going to be a challenging message for us at our heart posture of how we relate to others, but it's also going to be encouraging. Because embedded in this passage, we're going to see how God relates to us. And so our big picture summary this morning, it's on your outline, it'll be on the screen here. It's what I'm hoping that God would show us, is that Jesus calls us to a supernatural love that shows us our need for his power. Let's pray. Father, as we come in here this morning, we come in and we're broken folks and we got struggles and we got relationships that are difficult. We've got situations in our workplaces and our families culturally that we struggle to know how to respond. And Father, you want to speak to those. Jesus, you care about our hearts. You care about our posture. And even more than that, you care about how we understand your love for us. And Father, would you do what I have no power to do, that we have no power to do, which is to make your word come alive to us this morning. Would you help us locate ourselves in this text, to see this in our life, and to see how you relate to us. And would you challenge us and encourage us. We need you. It's your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin just how Jesus begins in this passage, and that's illustrating this idea of supernatural love. And we're going to do it kind of two little sections. The first one's going to come in verses 38 through 42. And here Jesus is going to give four examples that address retaliation on how we, how what we do when we're wronged or burdened by others. And so here's what's a little difficult for us. These were specific examples given to Jesus in Jesus's day, given by Jesus in Jesus's day to very specific things that they would understand and know about, things that we don't really experience in this way now. And so I want us to uh, dive in a little bit to each one, but really Jesus is giving those examples to challenge our heart which we can be challenged from. So I want to give a brief uh, explanation of a few of these to help get Jesus' point. So let's look at verses 38 through 42. He says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
So the, Jesus has got this method as he's going through the Sermon on the Mount, if you're joining with us now. For the first time, in verse 38, he said, you've heard it said. And then in verse 39, but I say to you. And this is where he's challenging the people of that day's understanding of what God's expectations were from the Old Testament. You heard it said was a challenging their view. And, but I tell you, he's giving God's real heart for what he wants and, and how we live and the vision for it. And here in verse 38, he's refer, referencing actually a passage in Exodus 21 and Le, Leviticus 24 in the Old Testament. And this law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was designed to ensure this kind of proper punishment was given particular crimes. And we may not say it in our day exactly like this, but it really is a foundational piece of our justice system as well. And the, the aim of it was to present this kind of escalation of vengeance that humanity is prone to. So right in that day, it may be something along the lines of, you killed my cow, well, I'm going to kill two of your cows. And pretty soon that in, means tribes are going at war together, right? So we know a little bit more innocent version of this, but the same urge is there. You got, if you got kids in your house, one kid takes one toy from another kid, and that escalates into World War III and about three other actions really quickly, right? We know this, this, this tendency for us to seek vengeance and where it goes. And so the application in the Old Testament wasn't always kind of literal eye for an eye, but it was based on values. Israelites could pay for things, uh, ways they wronged for one another that weren't just in exact terms like this. But the point was that this gave them a sense of justice, and it prevented this escalation of personal revenge. That was the aim of it. Here's the problem. The religious leaders took a good law that was primarily to be used in civil settings or law settings or disputes that the government was handling, and they wanted to adopt it in personal relationships. They wanted to take this law that was healthy in the context of a civil and law setting and let it be the way they thought about relationships in general. And so there was a twisting. Every one of us has got this urge in us to make those who offend us pay. And the religious leaders wanted to justify that urge. So you offend me, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, I'm coming after you. That was the twisting that he was addressing going on here. And so he addresses it by taking situations that would have been common in their day, and he shocks them with how they ought to respond. That was radically different than how they would have viewed it at that time. And in these, in these uh, examples, he's not giving us a new law book on how to respond. He's challenging the heart of how we understand our relationships with others, particularly with those who offend us or wrong us. So we're going to walk through a couple of these examples. We'll look at the first one here in verse 39. It says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So first reading of that, a lot of us think Jesus is saying we ought to be pacifists. There's no self-defense. But if you look at the passage and what he's saying, most people right-handed, to hit the right cheek, it's a backhand, right? Like this is a, in his day, would have been a personal insult of another. That's the idea of what he's getting at here. And so this example isn't about self-defense and a fight, but honor and how you handle a personal insult. The re religious leaders wanted to justify retaliation when they felt slighted by another. What's Jesus doing here? He's challenging this urge to retaliate, and he pushes us to a place we don't want to go. That's a willingness to absorb personal insults. It's a radical today, just as it was then. Verse 40, what do we see him doing? It says here, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Again, kind of a weird situation for us. What in the world does that mean? Well, under Exodus 22, 26, and 27, I didn't know this prior to looking at this passage, uh, a person's cloak was something that by law in the Old Testament could not be taken from them. It was like an inalienable right in a possession. 
because the outer coat wasn't just essential to keep them warm at certain times of the year. It was also when they traveled, their bedding and their, their blanket, all these kinds of things. And so what's going on here is Jesus is dealing with us holding loosely what we consider rights in our lives. And so what is he doing? He's challenging this posture of retaliation in a moment, this exacting revenge. And he pushes us to be doing something that is challenging for us just as well as for them. And that's to be willing to forego our personal rights for another. And then we see in verse 31, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Well, under Roman occupation, which the Jewish people were under, they could be conscripted to carry a Roman official luggage or a soldier's gear for a, for a mile. And so for a, uh, an Israelite at that time, it would be an insult and a degradation of them to go beyond just one mile, what the law conscripted of them, because these were their oppressors, right? But what's Jesus doing here? Again, he's given an example that's just challenging. And he's challenging this posture of being so exacting in our dealings with people. And he is literally pushing here and saying, you ought to be willing to be exploited for another's gain. It's radical. So those situations are foreign to our context, but what Jesus is pushing at in the heart is not. I mean, think about this. I mean, even just studying this, this is difficult to process. We have this urgent tendency, tendency to punish others and get back at them when they wrong us. That can happen inwardly in our heart or even with our actions, right? We can quickly move to bitterness and resentment when we know someone is taking advantage of us in our goodwill. Quickly, we can move there to bitterness and resentment. And we're taught to defend our rights, which is a good thing. Not saying that's a, not a good thing for a nation to do but it can lead us to be very exacting in our relationships with others. And Jesus' teaching here is to get to the heart of that and challenge the heart of that. And he's got another section here in verses 43 and 44 and 46 and 47 where he's further illustrating what love is going to look like in his mind and the way he outlines it. We can see it here he's addressing enemies. Let's look at verses 43 and 44, the 46 and 47. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So again, we got to deal with this understanding of how we think about enemy. An enemy is someone who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. And so the Israelites who were under Roman occupation at this point, know what it means to have an enemy, right? The Romans are their enemies. And the religious leaders knew from the Old Testament that God had called them to love their neighbor. That's, what that's part of what they're saying in verse 32. You shall love your neighbor. But then they say, and hate your enemy. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, hate your enemy. That was their interpretation that they came away with. Here's the thought in their mind. Oh, we, we know who our neighbor is. That's our, that's our brothers. That's our fellow Israelites. There's no way the Romans could be our neighbors, right? I mean, they oppress us. They exact lots of taxes from us. They rule over us. There's no way that we would consider them our neighbors. So God's calling us here to love our neighbors, but the Romans aren't our neighbors. We're called to hate our enemies. That's where they landed. They had to do a lot of gymnastics of interpretation to get there, but that's where they landed. And that was kind of some of the accepted norm of how they were to think. The religious leaders were great, just like all of us, in loving 
and caring and being kind and doing favors for those who benefit us. We're really good at that. But here Jesus is saying, I want you to provide that same standard of love and kindness and generosity towards those who oppress you and are your enemies. That's how radical of what he's getting at here. He's calling them to love those who are set against them and pray for them. They were to seek the good of their oppressors and intercede for them before their God. And so Jesus is challenging this inclination to do just good when it benefits us and calls us to do good even when it costs us or won't come back to us in return in a positive way. You feel the weight of that? I mean, some of us do have some hostile relationships maybe in our family, in our workplaces. But I don't think most of us have a lot of hostile relationships, but we do experience other tensions. And so if Jesus is saying here, this is to be our posture towards our enemies, how much so towards someone who just has a personality issue that grates on us a little bit, right? Someone who has a different lifestyle choices than us. What's our posture? What's our posture in our heart towards those who oppose our values? What is it? Jesus is speaking to that here. Someone in another political party whose values and positions anger us. It doesn't matter what side of the political aisle are you on. How do you treat those who are hostile to your cause? That's what Jesus is getting at here. I think generally we tend to have no problem doing acts of kindness towards those who are going to benefit us. But Jesus is calling us to do those to, who wrong us, oppose us, and are against us. And that's incredibly, radically challenging in our day as it was in his. And these examples he's giving here, they're not another handbook on a protocol for how you literally respond in every situation. And these examples are not to dictate how a government handles justice or oppression. And I don't think these examples justify inaction when we see exploitation happen in our culture or addressing abuse. They don't do that. I mean, Jesus' own actions in confronting exploitation and abuse are, are very clear. But these are what one scholars would call localized wisdom. I want to I walk through a lengthy quote. It'll be on two slides just so you can read along with me. It's by a guy named Jonathan Pennington who's a scholar thinking directly about how do these examples Jesus give apply to our day. And I want to deal with this because there's a lot of caveats here. There's, we read these examples, and I do think that our tendency is to want to think about all the literal ways that it might apply today. And we miss something when we do that. And so listen to this quote here by Jonathan Penning. He said, it's something to note that this point, it does with all ethical teaching, the practical outworking of these principles, even these specific illustrations of cheek turning, coat giving, and mile walking requires localized wisdom. Without neutering the challenge of this virtue vision, we must acknowledge that these illustrations are just that. They're not to be applied literally and without wise exceptions. The command to turn another cheek does not apply to the situation of rescuing a child from abuse, nor does the situation of giving to those who beg me, who beg, require me to hand over the keys to my car to the homeless man who approaches me in the grocery store parking lot. This kind of literalistic interpretation not only misses the point of this exegesis of non-retaliation, but also misunderstands the nature of ethical teaching. It gives a vision of virtue of how to be in the world that accords with God's righteousness 
but the working out of this in the individual's life is inevitably localized. So these examples are meant to challenge in our heart how we interpersonal relationships are postured towards those we disagree with and wrong us. Jesus is wanting to get at our tendencies. He's wanting to get at our posture. And he's wanting to call us to move intentionally towards sacrificial and generational love. And so as you sit back here, I don't know if your reaction is the same as mine, but as I read and studied these this week, frankly, these just seem outlandish. The way Jesus is calling us to respond is radically different than how our culture would tell us to live. And honestly, it's radically different than our own urges in our heart. And it, this, begins, this reality begins to point us to this. We need a power of outside of ourselves in order to even begin to function in this way. We need to experience the same love he's calling us to live out. And so I want you to notice where the power comes from in this passage. We're going to look at verses 43 through 48 now. Going back here, he said, You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rains on the just and on the unjust. For if those, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's a similar passage in Luke 6, which is Luke's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. And it says, But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So love that is towards those who are like us, who are similar to us, who treat us well, it doesn't take any dependence upon God. Now, some of us in this room are nicer than others by nature, but all of us are of a tendency that it's just not very difficult if someone is kind to us for us to be kind to them. It takes no power outside of ourselves. The world can do that. He, he references here tax collectors and Gentiles, and he basically says, listen, tax collectors and Gentiles do that. That was an insult to the Israelites reading this. The tax collectors were despised. They were considered wicked. They were Israelites who were basically treasonous and partnering up with the Romans to exact taxes from their own people. And he's saying, those folks aren't models for you, and they can live like that. And he begins to say the Gentiles, the people who didn't have the Old Testament law, who didn't have God rescuing them from uh, the oppressors all throughout the Bible, they can do that. So he, he's, he's showing them that, that listen, has, it takes no power to love those and be kind to those who are kind to you. But we need a power outside, outside of ourselves to love our enemies, to love those who wrong us. And I think part of what's happening here and that he wants us to see is that when we begin to recognize the, the enemies in the concept of the gospel and the framework of the gospel, we begin to locate ourselves in this passage in a very different way. What do I mean by that? The call here is to recognize God's mercy and how he has treated us. And then when we in turn can grasp that mercy, we can again show it to others. That's what he's getting at here in Luke so, uh, 636. And so the power comes as we experience how God has showered his love and kindness on the rebellious in this world. Did you get what he was saying? 
that God is kind and ungrateful to the wicked, to the ungrateful and the wicked. That God lets the sun rise and the rains fall on those irregardless of how they live in this world. That's the kindness of God. When we begin to see that, when we begin to locate ourselves as the ungrateful and the wicked, we begin to experience something very different in being able to show this kind of love to, to others. And the power comes as we experience how we're loved as sons and daughters of God. And so I'm convinced that on one level, this passage is deeply, deeply, deeply challenging. But on another level, when you begin to locate yourself in this passage, not on the one who is called to love, but on the one who is loved, it's unbelievably encouraging. I want you to just think for a minute. Think of those examples. Think of those commands. Is this not the way our Savior lived when he walked this earth under Roman oppression? So it didn't mean he didn't confront exploitation. He did that. But when he was personally reviled, when he was accused, when he was insulted, when he was mocked, how did he respond? He absorbed it. He took it. His personal honor wasn't something he fought for. He followed through everything that he's telling us to do. And here's the thing, he did it for us. Is this not the way our Savior personally relates to each one of us, even now as we gather? Think for a moment. Every one of us in this room, many times in the week, prefers to follow after idols than our own Jesus. How does Jesus respond when you prefer him, when you personally insult him by preferring idols over him? Does he push you back in anger and frustration, retaliate against you? No, he is more set on wooing you with his love and pursuing after you. We doubt Jesus' goodness to us and we challenge him in the heavenly courts. Why doesn't he provide for us? Why has he done this for us or that for us? He doesn't retaliate, but he continues to show, shower us with grace. Every one of us are guilty with exploiting Jesus' generosity. We look at what he's given us and we lack gratitude and expect more. I'm guilty of that. What's Jesus' response? He doesn't cut us off, but rather keeps providing for and pursuing us. The gospel itself tells us that we are enemies. The reason why Jesus absorbed every personal insult, every reviling, every mocking, and being charged as an innocent man guilty, the reason why he did that was because he was loving you and I in that moment, not his friends, but his enemies. And so we begin to locate in ourselves that the call to love enemies is the call to love how we have been loved, God's enemies. It radically begins to reshift how we understand this passage and how we reorient ourselves in this passage to see that first and foremost, we have to have a power outside of ourselves to experience love that God has had towards us as enemies. And that love transformed us to be his sons and daughters. And then and only then, that we see that we have the power to in turn love in that very same way. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He entered the brokenness of this world. He suffered unspeakable injustices as an innocent man, paid the penalty of death all for our treason. Frederick Buechner put it this way. It'll be up on your screen. He says, love for equals is a human thing. A friend for a friend, brother for brother. 
It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles, meaning it's just not, that's just normal. We, we know this. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice, the love for the poor, the love of the poor for the rich, the world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love, and it conquers the world. So where do we go from here? I do want to give a caveat to application when you look to apply this passage before we get into some challenges. And that's don't get too literal with Jesus' commands. There are going to be situations that we encounter in life um, that aren't personal insults, that are abuse, and uh, need to be dealt with accordingly. That turn the other cheek doesn't apply there. And uh, this can often happen in families and marriages. And so what I want to challenge you to do is if you're wrestling with how to love in a very difficult situation, and it's not just a one-time situation, but something that you've experienced for a long time, to embrace the body of Christ, embrace the community of wise brothers and sisters, and wrestle with the application of these truths in the context of community. Because there are many throughout history who have laid down and taken abuse that wasn't insults, that wouldn't have been applications of what we've seen here, that would have uh, angered Jesus himself. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to, if you're dealing with some of these long-term situations, to wrestle it with inside the body of Christ. But I think more broadly and generally, what Jesus is after is I want to give you two challenges as you walk away here. And one is that you and I would push back on the posture that we often have towards those whom we dislike, who have wronged us or opposed us, what we value. And to think about what's the principle on which we function in that relationship of someone who's opposing us. What's our posture? Is it similar to God's posture towards us or very different? So think about that. And to think about also, push back on the urge to always ask in relationships, and we're really good at this in America, of what's in it for me? What can I get out of this relationship? Because it is radically different than how Jesus is calling us to live. That posture and those postures don't reveal anything of God's love to the world. But we have, even as we face those challenges, we have one big hope here. And that's that the hope of God's love is real and powerful. And I, as I walked away from this, this, this was where I landed in my heart. A vague sense of my sin and of God's love and of what Jesus did on the cross will not do anything to help empower me to love those who oppose me. They won't do anything to do that. And so where I landed was, as I look at my own reluctance to love as God has loved me, let that be a fresh reminder of how God has loved me on the cross. That even as I look at his love and struggle to love in that way, let that be a fresh reminder of the very reason why he came for me and saved me. And as we begin to experience that, this hope of God's love has real power as you and I seek to be salt and light in our community. I mean, this is the kind of hope that the first Christians who were this was written to, and for the next three centuries, lived in marginalization and persecution. It was not cool. It was not easy. It was not beneficial in any 
imaginable way to be a Christian in their society. And yet, as they experienced the love of God, they were empowered to not only show love towards those who were marginalized in their community, but also towards those who were marginalizing them. And it was powerful. Christianity exponentially took over the Roman Empire within three centuries. The hope of this love is unbelievably powerful. And this is the very love that as we look around, even in our own history, that empowered men and women like Martin Luther King Jr. to love their torturers in the face of torture. Listen to this quote, and here's where I want to finish. By Martin Luther King. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to the night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy to a friend. Grace Church, the supernatural love Jesus is calling us to do, to love, is the same supernatural love. If you're a follower of Christ, that has turned an enemy to a friend. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into this room this morning, the idea of loving in this way is a deeply challenging reality. And I'm the first to confess that it is very difficult to love those who just even grate me in some of their behaviors, much less hate me. And Father, I pray that for all of us in this room, no matter how we're coming in, that you would help us to see ourselves in this passage as the enemies who have been loved by the God of creation. Help us taste and understand that love. And there may be some in this room who have never experienced that love. I pray that they would see that for the first time, that they would experience that for the first time, and it would move them to follow you. And God, and I ask that you would give us insight to those in our life that we struggle to love, maybe those who oppose our values, those who seem to have a penchant for wanting to frustrate us purposely, those who maybe are in open hostility towards us, that you would help us to understand what it looks like to love in the same way you've loved us, that you would bring your love to the deepest recesses of our heart. But I also pray if there's some wrestling in this room how to apply this in their situations, but they're dealing with something that is not what Jesus is speaking of here, but is an, an exploitation that borderline on abuse, God. I pray that you would bring it to light and that you would surround them with the loving care of the body of Christ who will fight for truth in that relationship. God, but we need you. We don't look out on the world and say, oh, the world needs that love. We need that love in here, God. And so would you revisit it with a fresh taste of how deep the Father's love towards us is, that we would in turn be able to show that love to others. It's in your name we pray. Amen.